Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Notations, a podcast hosted by Early Music Vancouver. Through conversations with our upcoming artists, this series explores the who, the why, and the how behind our live and digital concerts, and sheds light on early music's brilliant capacity to reinvent itself. For more than 50 years, Early Music Vancouver has dedicated itself to revitalizing musical treasures of the past for modern audiences. It has a season that runs through the fall, winter and spring and produces the annual Vancouver Bach Festival in summer. Its passport series, co-created with Kia Tabassian of Constantinople, helps amplify the voices of musical traditions of the world. In today's interview, Radio-Canada's host and producer Sylvia Licuyer talks with Baroque violinist Chloe Kim about her upcoming concert with the Pacific Baroque Orchestra called Prophets Outside Their Country. The title refers to the many composers and musicians who left their countries to seek work or fame or financial stability elsewhere. Canadian violinist Chloe Kim, however, is a prophet inside as well as outside her country. She has performed as soloist and concertmaster in prominent concert venues around the world, sharing the stage with many internationally celebrated musicians. Sylvia and Chloe speak about Pietro Antonio Locatelli's beautiful concerto for strings and continuo, known as Il Pianto d'Arianna, The Tears of Arianna and of Arcangelo Corelli's variations on La Folia for violin and continuo. In the musical excerpts, you'll hear Chloe Kim performing with cellist Melisande Corriveau and harpsichordist Alexander Weimann, as well as with the Pacific Baroque Orchestra, one of Canada's most exciting and innovative ensembles, performing early music for modern ears.
Today uh, we are plunging into Italian music of the 18th century and I have the pleasure to be here with Chloe Kim. Hello Chloe. Very nice to be here. Chloe, this program talks about people who had to get out of their country to have a career and get known, but now today you are Vancouver born, you are here and you are having a wonderful career. It's a very <laughs> different times. Uh, it looks to me that when you have this music of um, uh, Gemignani, uh, Locatelli, Corelli, uh, what is the other one? Brescianello. Brescianello, <laughs> less known, that it will be more or less all the same music, but it's not. Everyone is very different. This is true, this is true. So the overriding similarity between the four is that they were all violinists and very talented ones. You can tell from their writing that it's all very idiomatic. Uh, so the composers had a, a very intimate understanding of, of what the violins could do. Locatelli in particular was a little bit of a, a madman when it came to his violin writing uh, among violinist, his writing is really known as some of the most challenging. He has a set of caprices that is that is really difficult and uh, just extraordinary for the writing of that time. You will never see Corelli's writing go quite that far in that direction. But Corelli was a little bit of the father of them all. He was, the, he was a little yes, bit earlier than the other exactly. ones? Exactly. And I actually, I think Gemignani had studied with Corelli. Uh, so you can see that there was a lot of sort of overlap between between the four, and I'm, I'm sure that, yeah, they all would have known about each other. Um, yeah, it's interesting to think now of how much uh, dialogue there would have been and and the things that would have been absorbed by sort of osmosis just by being in close uh, proximity to each other. It, it seems strange that Italy being the, the, the place where this violin school was born and it was very much appreciated, I'm sure, by mm -hmm. the public, by everybody. Yes. Why did they have to go to England? What kind of attraction Italian violinists had and composers had in England? I think everybody wants uh, to be well known uh, in a certain respect. And especially for composers, I think there's a desire to have their work be disseminated, if that makes any sense. The, the fact is also they were defending their music themselves because they were performers as well. Exactly, yeah. With, with composers like Locatelli and Corelli, uh, even Gemignani, there were so many accounts of that, their violin playing just being absolutely exquisite and absolutely sort of mind-blowing uh, when it came to their, just their technical virtuosity as well as, as sort of the really heartbreaking, touching things that they could do with ornamentation and... When you talk about heartbreaking, I'm thinking of this Lamento, this uh, Ariadne piece yes. by Locatelli. It's very vocal. It's like a piece of music you could have words on it. Absolutely, and it was actually something that in my preparation for the for uh, performing, I was really thinking of it as a programmatic piece, as something that is um, very, quite cinematic, actually, in a way. Mm. Um, there are moments where you play the piece and then it's, it's as if you're sitting in her head, right? Feeling all these feelings and hearing her thoughts. And then there are moments where you're really, from the third perspective, observing her, if that makes any sense. So we have to know, tell yes. us what's, what happens to her because at the time, the listeners knew exactly what the story of Ariana exactly. was. Exactly, yes. So Ariana is, uh, we come upon her when she's been abandoned by her lover Theseus on the island of Naxos. Uh, so it's a Greek sort of tragedy. Um, and she 
um, embarks on sort of a series of emotions, right, once she wakes up. So we come across her when uh, she's sleeping and she doesn't know yet that she's been left. Um, and you can sort of hear all the mist and the clouds parting and you, we come sort of bird's eye point of view, seeing her sleeping on You're the island. You're bringing us to the images in no, your totally. head. It's I wonderful. Mean, this is, this I love is it. what I was yeah. thinking when I was playing. It's, I, I really try to have really strong uh, images of what I'm trying to convey. <laughs>
But when we have something very different, like this uh, very lyrical uh, Locatelli, mm -hmm. and you told us the images you have in your head, I mean, Alexander doesn't have the same image. How do you communicate? No, actually, we were very much on the same page about what we wanted from that piece, which was really nice, actually. And the dialogue that we had surrounding uh, Ariadne and her journey was just something that I'm going to remember for a while. There was a specific thing that I had wanted from the third movement, which comes after the recit for the violin. Okay. It's like this, the moment when she wakes up, you know, and she's discovered that she Where has Where is been, he? Exactly. Yeah. Where are you? <laughs> yeah. When she's been abandoned. And so it comes after that. It's the second iteration of the opening material. And I wanted that, even though it's the same material, to be quite different because it needs to be different. We need to understand exactly why she's so upset, right? What she's lost. So I'd actually asked our beautiful violists, Mika and Joanna, if they would actually sing out their inner line, which to me was really Theseus's voice. Um, and the harmonies actually that they bring out are, they're beautiful, but they're hollow in a way. So I think it was actually a reflection of her new understanding of what that relationship was. was It was such a beautiful thing. It was, you know, all of his pretty words and his promises, and yet, you know. But I told the violists, and they did this so well in the concert, that they have to take us to such beauty, right? It needs to hurt when they go away. Which of the pieces is the most uh, challenging technically for the violin? Uh, they're challenging in different ways, I would say. Um, the Corelli demands a lot more uh, freedom of ornamentation in ornamentation and sort of like uh -huh. in the moment. And that's a piece where you really don't want that to sound planned. <laughs> Okay. I, I mean, because folia, right? It translates yeah. to madness or insanity. Yeah. And madness is never planned, right? It's just, <laughs> you have to be sort of in the moment and very spontaneous with that sort of thing, so. Even if there is a degree of improvisation, because there is. Oh, absolutely. I, we really didn't rehearse that piece. <laughs> really? <laughs> no, I mean, I think we took like a couple passes at it in, in rehearsal and then decided maybe a couple moments here and there specific things that we wanted to do just as like grounding points but the rest was like okay let's go for for a ride <laughs> you know wow. yeah
what is your relationship with your instrument now? Oh. I mean, you've spent so long playing this instrument. Did you at point didn't want to see it anymore, or did you? Are you passionately attached to it? I will say the pandemic was an interesting thing to go through. I think for many musicians, because when suddenly everything is ripped away from you, you know, all of your engagements, it's just difficult to nurture that relationship in the same way where there aren't parameters surrounding it. But I do have to say in retrospect, it was actually probably the best thing that could have happened because I think when there's a financial element that is tied to anything, it becomes less pure. So it was really a return to, okay, why do I love doing this? You know, what is the reason why I keep coming back to this? Making sure that it's it's really a choice every day. If yeah, that makes I think any you sense. said one day that one of your first teachers said you have to do this music vocation only if you could not live without it. Exactly. Yeah, and that's something that I really had to think hard about during the pandemic, and I, I'm sure for all other musicians too. It's something that we we were really thinking about a lot. But no, I'm. Mm. Happy as ever with the instrument, happy as ever with the violin. Uh, it's a life partner in many ways. <laughs> 